Welcome to Soul by the Pound podcast. This podcast is a safe space designed to inspire and empower women of color to take personal responsibility in their health and mental wellness. So ladies, sit back and enjoy. This is our space. Hey everyone, good evening. Welcome to Soul by the Pound podcast. This is season one, episode two. And I have the amazing Dr. Allison Myers. Hey. Good. How is everyone doing out there today? Yes, we are doing amazing. And I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Like when I was envisioning this podcast, I literally thought of you the moment I met you. Like, oh my gosh, this would be so perfect to have you on because you have so many amazing accolades. And I'm going to read your bio. Um, just so that our audience is familiar with how amazing you are. Um, And then I'll let you introduce yourself as well. So Dr. Allison Myers is an associate chair for diversity, equity, and inclusion for the Department of Medicine at Montefiore, Albert Einstein, and the Bronx. She is also an adjunct associate professor at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. Dr. Myers attended the University of Virginia, where she majored in French and minored in chemistry. By the way, I was hating that your major was French. I had to stop in college. <laughs> I, horrible. I was hating on that. Um, after college. C'est dommage. Oh, there you go. I stink. Um, after college, she returned home to Queens, New York to teach junior high school students in math and science. A year later, she attended SUNY Downstate for medical school, all right, uh, where she majored in four-year, was a four-year recipient of the President Award Scholarship. She completed a five-year combined internal medicine psychiatry residency at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. That's my hometown, so yes, love there. Chi-town, Yes. <laughs> And from 2014 to 2020, you also served as a medical director for inpatient diabetes at North Shore University Hospital. That's like so huge, like so amazing. On top of all of these accolades, um, she has published several publications on topics of diabetes disparity, as well as diabetes technology. She has been a reviewer for several journals, including the Journal of Diabetes Science and Technology, as well as Diabetes Care. She is an active member in, am I saying this right, endocrine? Is that how you said? Endocrine. Endocrine, Endocrine. okay. (laughs) Endocrine Society as an abstract reviewer and presenter for the 2022 Excel program. Dr. Myers also serves on the American Board of Diabetes and Metabolism. She has received numerous awards and accolades, including being recognized at Dr. Zay, a community service by Northwell Health in 2021, and as top doctor of the year by Professional Organization of Women Excellence Recognized in 2019. In her spare time, which I don't know how you have spare time and all this black girl magic, okay? But in her spare time, she enjoys volunteering in her community, traveling, watching movies, and going to the gym. So welcome, Dr. Thank Allison, you. my soror, welcome. Welcome. Skibi. 
Did I miss anything? Like, is there anything you want to add? Because this is so much. But did I miss anything? <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, there are other things that I do, but I think you highlighted some of the big ones. Um, I do write um, for scientific journals, and I'm also a reviewer. In fact, I have two articles that they've asked me to review that I need to get done one of these days. Um, but yeah, mentoring, and, and I'm also a sponsor. So a lot of times I think people don't know. So I guess I can tell a fun fact. So mentoring is kind of like, you know, you're helping someone along. But sponsorship is something that I've been able to transition to in the now that I'm in the middle of my career. And that's pretty much someone asked me to write a paper. Somebody asked me to give a talk and my schedule is too full because, as you said, I do too many things. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? I can't do this, but I know this great junior faculty member that would be wonderful for this. So um, I'm very big on passing on the torch. I think, unfortunately, sometimes uh, as people are in academics, they tend to hold on to things, but I think it's always good to pass the torch on. So I'm a big proponent of that. No, I agree. And that's so good that you do that. Yes. Oh, so now we all know the difference between sponsorship and mentorship. So let me ask you this. Um, the first question is really, how did you get your start? Like, what made you, like, what made you decide to go into medicine? What was it? So my start, I actually entered the world in this wonderful place called Brooklyn. Um, that's where I was born, but I grew up and was raised in Queens. Um, so Queens get the money. Because, yeah, so Queens is what I call home. But uh, I was just like, ever since I was a little kid, I was always like, I want to be a doctor. And it's funny, like when I was about four, I was like, I'm going to be a people and an animal doctor so I can take care of people and their pets, one-stop shopping. So that was my original. And then, you know, before we knew about, Dr. Huxtable, I was like, oh, I'm going to be an OBGYN because we actually saw an image of a black male doctor mm -hmm. and a black female lawyer. So it's like, you know what? Even though I had no doctors in my family, I was like, oh, I can really do this. And then when I got to medical school, um, five, sorry, when I got to college, I thought I was going to be a forensic pathologist because, you know, after OJ's trial and all these other high criminal, high profile criminal trials, we started seeing how you can use forensic data to put people away or exonerate people. So that was my next. And then when I got to medical school, I ended up with a mentor my third year and he did internal medicine psychiatry. And I was like, this is really cool because you're understanding the person in entirety. You're understanding what's going on in their social life. You're understanding what's going on in their mental life, as well as their physical life. There's something that they use called the biopsychosocial model when you're incorporating their person's biology, their psychology, and their social issues to treat the entire person mm -hmm. as a part, as a point, um, in, as opposed to the traditional way of medicine where we separate and we silo medicine versus psychological versus social. So um, that's how I got my start. Medicine. Oh my gosh. Two things mm -hmm. that really stuck out in my head as you say that. Well, for one, let me say this. I didn't even know something like that existed because we often, and particularly sometimes people of color, when we think of doctors, we think they don't think of the entire mm -hmm. us. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we feel like it's like that stamp of one size fits all. So it's good to know that there is this whole practice of really understanding. But two mm -hmm. things that I really stuck out while you were talking is one, you had vision of like what you mm -hmm. wanted to do. And since a little girl, and that's so important, it's like having that vision of what direction you want to go. And then two, the importance of representation, because mm -hmm. we forget how much that like really plays a role in, you know, who we become and who we want to become essentially. So that is so cool. You did mention like you had a mentor that inspired you. Um, do you still have like this relationship with your mentor? Or, like, so 
in my life, there's always two or three degrees of separation. So my mentor and I, we kept in touch, you know, off and on. And then there was like a period of time where we just, you know, just we kind of drifted apart, not because we had a falling out, but just life happened. Mm -hmm. And a few fast forward, I moved back home to New York in 2012 and I'm hanging out with my cousin who is awesome. And he was like, I want to take you to this party, um, a dinner party. And I was like, okay. And he was like, and I think you may know one of the people that is throwing it. So to make a long story short, my mentor is married to a friend of my cousin. Wow. Oh my God. And my cousin and I are like 30 years apart in age. So it's not like, you know, this is like someone who's my, my age, my cousin is, you know, well older than me, but we still hang out. I love him to pieces. So we went to the party and it was like, we picked up where we left off. It was so good to see oh, him. Yes. I knew he had a son and I had to meet his son finally. I met his wife. And it was just like a nice, nice reunion. So I probably haven't spoken to him now in a couple of years, but you know, it was nice to come back to him and he was happy to see, you know, that I was now growing up, I was an attending in medicine. So the world is very small. Shout out to Dr. Freeman. He's awesome. Yeah, shout out to him. And I'm sorry, but I love those relationships where you don't have to talk every day or you can even miss a couple of years. But like when you see them, it's like completely genuine. Mm -hmm. And it's just where you left off. Right. And, and he I would get mad. He would tell me, you know, you're supposed to call me Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know he's so proud of you, too. Yes. Yeah. Because I, like you said, and a lot of med students don't even know about med psych. So shout out to the Association of Medicine and Psychiatry. I'm actually doing a webinar with them tomorrow. Oh, but nice. there's actually internal medicine, psychiatry, um, family practice in psychiatry and neurology and psychiatry combined programs. They're not as common as some of the others. But again, it's a good way of getting training in both the understanding of psychiatry as well as medicine or neurology. That is so important. That is so important, especially when you think of, and, and this is going to actually segue into what we're talking about and what, you know, particularly Black women need to hear when it comes to health. But mm -hmm. like, what would you say, like, how, how do we start those conversations, right? So like, for a doctor that does have a background like yours, how, like, if you're in an emergency room or if you're going to this, how do you start those conversations so they really understand you as a whole and you don't necessarily feel like just a number, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. So for me, um, the traditional way of doctoring was you had take on a paternalistic role. And that's totally not me. I mean, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a comedian. Like I was <laughs> the kid who got in trouble for cracking jokes. So I'm very conversational and I'm, I look at my patients as, we have a partnership. I tell them, it's like, you're driving the car. I'm the passenger. I'm help here to guide you and help you drive if need be. But at the end of the day, you have to deal with this 365 days a year. You see me maybe three or four times a year. So there's but so much I can do. So, you know, that's always, you know, kind of the way I establish my relationships with my patients. And then it becomes our journey together to go through this but I'm not talking at you. I'm not talking down to you. It's funny that some of the patients went by my previous job would come to the emergency room. And these were not patients I took care of outside the hospital, but they unfortunately were such frequent fires that they knew me better than some of their own doctors because they were always getting sick. <laughs> and they would be like, oh my gosh, I'm scared. Don't, is Dr. Maya going to see me? She's going <laughs> to yell at me today. So I would come downstairs and say to them down to the ER and be like, let me ask you a question. Have I ever raised my voice at you? 
No. I said, okay, then why are you saying that about me? You're making me look bad. <laughs> They're like, no, but the way you say it, the tone of voice, Dr. Myers, I feel like you are yelling at me, but you never raise your voice, but it's like you're yelling. <laughs> and I actually learned that technique from a psychiatry attending of mine in uh, residency. He said, you don't ever have to yell at a patient. Not that I did, yeah, but he was yeah. like, you never have to yell at a patient. If you say things, he was from Long Island, but you know, as I trained, you just mentioned, I trained in Chicago, but he was like, you don't need to raise your voice. You don't need to get agitated. You just let it go. And you just say it in a certain tone and they won't mess with you. <laughs> and I still remember, shout out to Dr. Michael Easton to this day, him saying that. And he was right. <laughs> That's so you know what my Angelou say? It's how you make people feel. Yes. So yelling yes. is usually not going to make people feel good. No, but definitely having that that voice that you mastered definitely yes the concerning mother or concerning big sister absolutely i love that you said partnership i literally wrote that down when you said it because not only like you say like more doctors should do it but also i feel like if more women knew like and because this podcast is focused on women i'm typically going to say women most of the time but i feel like if more women thought of their doctor as a partner it wouldn't one be so intimidating and two it will feel like you will have a sense of ownership of your results, if that makes sense. Like, No, it does. Yeah. And, you know, this is part of why I'm in this whole diversity workspace, because one of the things I try to explain to my colleagues is when you see people that looks like you and speaks like you and understand you, it makes all of the difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, unfortunately, if you look at medicine as a whole, only 2% of physicians are Black women. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if you look at doctoring, Overall, five, roughly 5% 5 of doctors are Black and roughly 6% are Latino or Hispanic. Yeah. So the thing is, unfortunately, a lot of these chronic diseases disproportionately affect our communities. Mm -hmm. And as a result, very often they're not seeing you know doctors that look like them, that necessarily understand them. It's not to say that because your doctor is of a different race that they're a bad doctor, because that's not true. One of my favorite primary care doctors was an Indian woman. She mm -hmm. and I were like, we clicked so well. She got me. She was amazing. Um, but, you know, I think even though she wasn't black, as a woman of color, she understood things that maybe someone who's not from a marginalized community can get. So I can even say in my own doctors, I've had doctors of every you know background, but I can mm -hmm. understand why there's a preference very often for us as people of color to want someone who looks like us, who understands us. Like I can speak my language and you'll understand me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's funny that we say this because um, just this past weekend, how crazy is this? Um, Valentine's Day weekend, I had um, appendicitis. <gasps> oh no. Yes. And so I actually went to the hospital and um I think, okay, so I went to the hospital and it happened so fast. And a lot of people are telling me it happened so fast when it happened to them. So I go to the emergency room because I feel pain. And then I go, they're like, okay, well, we're going to take you to surgery. Like it wasn't a conversation. It was just like a get mm -hmm. to a room. It was like that quickly. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I thought was so amazing is that my surgeon was a black woman. Okay. And an anesthesiologist was a black woman. Nice. And I, I know. And I was like, this is why it's so, representation is so important because for one, the nurse that willed me upstairs, they had me, I had clip-ins in my hair. <laughs> and <laughs> the one nurse was like, just take them out. And then the black nurse was like, hold on, let me get her something for her hair. Like, you know, like, this is like, let's put this in a bag or something. Yes. Yeah. Like we got to get her together. Like here's mm -hmm. a cap for her. And, mm -hmm. um, 
when I went upstairs and I saw the surgeon and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to see you. Like I just mm-hmm. felt relief because mm-hmm. surgery is scary. Mm-hmm. I'm away from my like my family's in Chicago. I'm right. in New York. So the whole thing was very scary, but just automatically seeing her, I told her I was so happy to see her. And mm-hmm. then she definitely talked to me in my language and she was just like calm and she's like, Oh, we're gonna have a black girl magic Sunday. You're gonna be nice. in and out so fast. Like it nice. just definitely gave like some comfort to the situation. And I think that's so important. And, I, and I'm mm-hmm. the same. I've had favorite doctors that were not black, but it definitely does add a level of comfort um, mm-hmm. when you're going into the hospital. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. Well, what is, okay, so let me ask you this. What is the one thing that you would, and I, I don't actually, I shouldn't even say one thing. I wrote that initial question, but I want to leave it open if you like, want to expand more because I'm especially happy to have you on the show because not only are you coming from a medical perspective, but also a diversity and inclusion on how we can even, how like giving tips for the blueprint on those behind you. So what would you say are some tips for women of color, not just addressing like when dealing with healthcare or when going to the doctor, but also when it comes to if they want or choose to have a career in medicine? Okay, so I'll go with the career in medicine. I would say, so I'm second generation college in my family, but I'm the first to go to medical school. Okay. And I think what really helps is you have to know somebody who's gone this path beforehand. So my mom, she's, um, she grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, She grew up in, you know, modest background. And one of her classmates was a physician. He was a nephrologist. And, you know, he knew that I was interested in being a doctor And so he did things to make sure. In fact, he was a nephrologist. And what was so dope about it was one of their other classmates was an architect. So Dr. Thompson was doing, um, had a dialysis center and their classmate as the architect designed it. So it was just like a lot of black excellence going on there. Mm -hmm. And again, these are kids who grew up very modest um, means in Brooklyn. And so he really wanted me to be a nephrologist. And like when he unfortunately passed away, his wife packed up his books and gave them to me. Oh so I have God. like these books from the 50s and 60s written about hypertension and blacks. And I will not let these books go. They're oh classics. Oh my gosh, that's so and Yeah. I remember to this day when I graduated from medical school, he came and picked me up. He took me to City Island for lunch and he got me a subscription to the New England Journal of Medicine. So if you have somebody like that in your life, it really makes a difference, especially when you are the first and only in your family. I mean, my family, my village supported me in my quest. Don't get me wrong. Um, But no one had done this before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it was like, you know, they were there, they were happy um, and they were there with me every step of the way. But it's really important that you have somebody who's been through this to help guide you because you're going to be competing with kids whose parents are doctors, their grandparents are doctors, their aunties and uncles are doctors, their dad plays golf with the chairman of the hospital. So it's like you're competing against kids who already are in the inner circle, who already automatically have a seat at the table because of who they are Mm -hmm. or their background. And very often for people of color, we don't have that same inner connection. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why it's so important that you seek out sponsorship, mentorship early so you can get your foot in the door. I think when you wait too late, it can be very difficult. And in fact, I know a young lady who's going through that now. And I had to have a really candid conversation with her about 
this may not be working out. You may need to consider going an alternate route to becoming a doctor because she didn't necessarily get the best guidance and advice. Wow. It's really important that you start young and get advice from a good pre-med person, a good doctor, get those volunteering hours in because that's something that's important. Do your community service, show that you're well-rounded um, and you know have leadership positions. Those are the things that they're going to be looking at. And then of course your grades need to be top-notch and your MCAT score needs to be pretty good. Wow. It's funny that you mentioned this because I actually, I went to the dentist a couple months ago and it was a student that was there. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, have you, you know, she was talking about graduation. And I was like, oh, well, where, you know, have you been looking where you want to apply for? And she was like, mm -hmm. oh, my dad has a dental office already. I'm not worried about that. Like, yep. And she was probably, like, she was so young and just so sure. And I was thinking, oh, to just have that access. So, mm -hmm. Wow. And that's a gym you drop. So now so those listeners that are listening, if you have someone, you know, a kid, because I'm sure some listeners are probably in our age group so far, but definitely make sure that they start very, very early. Let's get them started yeah. early. Absolutely. Yeah. You like it's possible. Um, so like say you go to college and then you're working and you're like, you know what? I want to go back to medical school. A lot of times what will happen is if you didn't take the prerequisites in college, then you're kind of like, oh, what do I do? But there are these post-baccalaureate programs where you can actually take two years and do all the coursework that you need. Um, or if you just maybe need one or two classes, obviously you can always audit, you know, go to some school, I'm sorry, go on, on the non-matriculate program. But um, there's also what's called the post-baccalaureate program where you could do all of the pre-med classes in a two-year period and you don't get obviously the same degree, but you would then cover all your bases and then you could apply. And of course you want to do well on them MCAT. Okay. Okay. So not only we, we, we you drop in major gyms because we bring in more black doctors coming up. Yes. We need yes. more. We, need we definitely more. need more. So go to the, the hospital side, I would say, because you've done so much with diabetes. So what would you say? Okay. Number one, I know you said Think of it as a partnership. Any mm -hmm. other tips you want to have, like for our listeners, when it comes to because we we still have some people out there, and I mean, people of color are doing great strides when it comes to health, um, women of color. But I definitely know that there still is this intimidation factor, and there still is this disparity. So, do you have any tips on or anything you want to touch on in regards to that? Right. So one of the biggest issues that was impacting communities of color was health insurance, which is why, you know, our previous uh, president, um, President Obama, was so big and, you know, Hillary Clinton were so big on working on this universal health care because a lot of people were either uninsured or underinsured. Um, so what will happen is some people will have health insurance, but they have what's called a high deductible. So what that means is you have to pay a certain amount of money um, in addition to your health insurance. So sometimes when you go to, like you talked about going to the emergency department, um, if you went to the emergency department at your, one of the hospitals for your current employer, you pay next to nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, that was how, cause I, obviously I used to work where you work. So mm -hmm. that's how good our insurance was, but God forbid we were out of network. It wasn't as good, but for some people, it doesn't matter where they are. Their co-pays for the emergency department could be, you know, several hundred dollars. And the same also can be extended to their prescription plans. Some people have that they have to spend like $2,000 or $5,000 um, before their prescription plan will kick in where they'll then pay only like $50 for medicine. So all of these things make it very difficult for people who are middle class 
lower class or below the poverty line to be able to keep up with their care if they have some of these barriers with their insurance. Obviously, all insurances are not like that. There are some people who have wonderful insurance and they may be middle class or lower class. But for a lot of people, they also have these other issues with their insurance. So if you're having those type of issues and your medication is running you $3,000 a month, but you still have to pay rent, electricity, people who have children have to pay daycare, you have to pay your car note, you have to pay car insurance, it can be very difficult to keep up. Mm-hmm. And then you have people, especially people of color, who are working multiple jobs and they can't make it to the doctor. And see, what makes things um, uneven in the playing field is that the U.S. government did not reimburse for telehealth across the board. So for someone like myself who works in a place like New York, I would have to work upstate New York in what's considered a rural area to be able to get reimbursed. So if I try to do a telehealth visit with you here in Long Island, where I used to work, or in the Bronx, where I am now, what would happen is I wouldn't get reimbursed. So pretty much I'd be working for free. Because mm. what we do is when we see you, we drop a bill to your insurance company so that we can get reimbursed for our time and what we did in terms of your services. But that wasn't happening before. But once pandemic hit, they realized, oh, we need to start covering this for more people because people that are in non-rural areas can't get to the doctor. Wow. Yeah. So all of these social factors, economic mm-hmm. factors, um, structural issues in healthcare have made it very difficult for a lot of average Americans to get the care that they need, whether or not they have a good doctor. I literally can like high five you through this computer right now because <laughs> I keep, so when I started so by the Pound, it was about taking personal responsibility for health and wellness. That was the mission. That was the goal. That's all we talked about. When I launched this podcast, I was like, no, I don't want to take a, a personal responsibility. We could eat all the kale. We could have all of the things that we're supposed to do for ourselves as a personal responsibility. But there still are systems that need to be held accountable that are that they're unbalanced. So I'm so happy that you touched on this insurance thing because that's something that I think we all know, but I don't think no one has like, we haven't really drawn this assessment. We could literally talk about black people and hypertension and all of these things without actually even just considering just regular health care. So I would have one other to add. Let's not forget about pharmacies mm-hmm. because I can tell you, I'm not going to blow up this body of the pharmacy, but I can tell you that pharmacies in certain areas, Southeast Queens are not the same as pharmacies you'll find in other neighborhoods. Wow. But um, yeah, like I've had, um, for example, patients where they didn't um, get their medicine for a couple of weeks because the pharmacy had the medication on back order and they couldn't get it from another store, quote unquote. I had another patient who I was giving a generic medication for his cholesterol and they were charging him brand name price. Wow. So that's the other issue is sometimes the pharmacies in our low income areas or in our neighborhoods of color do not always give the best services. I wish you could see my face right now. I have those lights. Yeah. I'm like the little yeah. emoji with the popped eyes right now. That's insane. Yeah. I didn't even think about pharmacies. Yeah. And insane. the pharmacies have the ability to negotiate like with the pharmaceutical companies to try to lower drug prices as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, you ideally want the pharmacies to work for you so that to reduce and cut on the cost, but some <laughs> are better than others. Wow. So wow. there's a lot of layers to this. A lot of layers. Oh, my mm. goodness. Sheesh. I mean, like, I feel like we have to have you come back another time to <laughs> talk about sure, this. Sure, exactly. sure. Because this is, like, serious, like, a serious conversation that we need to address. Because I, I said this 
2022, at the start of this podcast, that it needs to be a call out on what's really going on, like like mm-hmm. holding other people accountable for it as well. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so okay, we talked about we talked about pharmacies, we talked about hospitals, we talked about you know education and like future doctors. What are some final thoughts that you like want to share with some of our listeners? Um, because this is a lot. But I mean, like, mm-hmm. what is one thing that we should? I keep saying one thing, but it isn't one thing because you're so you like literally know everything. What is right. something that like really is a takeaway? And this is not going to be the soul star tip, but what is a right. takeaway that you would like for someone to take away from tonight? You have to be your own advocate for your health, mm-hmm. and when I say you have to be your own advocate for your health, is like you should know your numbers. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've had times where I might have forgotten or missed something, and my patient will be like, "Oh, Doctor Myers, what about this?" And I'm like. Oh, Thank you for reminding me. Yes, we need to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is with all the charting, putting orders in, reconciling medications, making sure your allergies, it's very easy that we can forget things. It happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your doctor can have the best intentions, but we get so much time for a visit. And sometimes there's a lot to discuss and we may forget something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have questions or something that you feel like something's missing, speak up. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always important. And one thing that we as doctors can't stand, please don't do it. Don't wait till you're putting your coat on and walking out the door. If there's something <laughs> bothering you, bring it up early in the visit. Do not wait until it's like, okay, we're done. And um, I'm heading out the door. You're about to put your coat on. Oh, by the way, doctor, I didn't ask you this. Make sure you get your questions addressed early in the visit. Do not wait for the door to open. That's so funny. Okay. Um, it's funny because I took a workshop a couple of years ago and this guy was like, think of the hospital as a restaurant. He was like, you don't sit down and let them tell you what you need to get, what you need to order that day. You know what mm-hmm. you need to order. So mm-hmm. make sure that you're like, you're clear. And I'm glad you said you're an advocate for yourself. Like speak up mm-hmm. for yourself, no matter how, you know, intimidating it might possibly be to really speak up for yourself. I know when I went into this, going back to this appendix thing. The lady mm-hmm. in the hospital, which she, she was like a, the, I don't know, like a clerk. She wasn't a clerk. What is a person called that like weighs you on a scale when you first? Oh, come? that's well. In in the health system where you work and where I used to work, it was called a PCA, a patient care advi- associate. Okay, so this it's like woman, what they would have normal in the back and like back in the day would have called like a nurse's aide or an aide. Okay, okay, but, that's, yeah. okay. So this lady, she tells me she's like, oh, you probably have a stomach flu, and I'm like. <laughs> I know my body. Like, first mm-hmm. of all, I prepare all my food. I hate eating out. So I know mm-hmm. what, like, mm-hmm. I know I don't have stomach flu. And I know it doesn't feel like a stomach flu. But I was just, mm-hmm. then, like, I was I'm happy that I was a bit adamant about moving forward and, like, the severity of things because, and, and it's crazy because in my head, I, I hear, like, oh, don't be confrontational. You have to be really, really nice. And then, like, oh, be really nice. But then you want them to take you serious. Like, I had, like, literally 10 million different thoughts going on because the hospital is so intimidating to me, but definitely you're right. Be your own advocate and like, and you know, it's interesting you bring that up because there's a study out of my undergraduate alma mater's med school, university of Virginia, where students, and this study was not done that long ago. It's not like from the 1940s or thirties. This is, you know, far more recent. We're asked about differences in pain between um, black and white patients and there were definitely biases found mm. amongst you, you know the white providers or non-providers because they thought that we have higher pain tolerance, so we don't need as much pain medicine. So 
Listen, this is exact. My friend this is and I, definitely a real issue. It is such that is so true. So when they ask you, I hate when they ask on a scale of one to ten. As a black woman, that is my most unfavorable question, right? Mm-hmm. Because I heard that, like, if you say it's a nine, they're like, ah, uh, she's drug seeking. Yeah, yeah. So it's really like a seven, or then they're like, oh, well, you really don't need payments, and. That's the problem. Like it, 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 cause it definitely. I don't know. Like it definitely confuses me sometimes. I'm like, what do I say? Ever since I hear more and more about this, it makes me like, do I add two more numbers? Do I bring it up or not? Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, mm-hmm. like you don't even know how to respond sometimes. Yeah, and the other thing too for people who have substance use disorders, like <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> someone, who, someone who does ten bags of heroin a day, you're really gonna give them two milligrams of morphine. That used to crack me up. <laughs> And one thing I can tell you is if somebody is an intravenous drug user, if they tell you what vein is good, listen to them. <laughs> Do not sit there and tell somebody who shoots up the, that they don't know their body. Right. They will know where you can go, what, blain, what veins have been blown from their use, past hospitalizations, things like that. So again, that's where you being your own advocate comes in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's one thing I never would take for granted. If a, if somebody, like I said, with a substance use disorder who was using IV drugs would come in and say, this is my good vein, that's the vein we're going for. <laughs> Go to that I'm vein. not going to sit here and use a vein that's blown and waste their time and my time and put them through unnecessary pain. That's why we have to listen to patients. No, that's very true. Or something. I'm like cracking up laughing at this, but this is a ser- it's so serious. It is. It's, it's very serious. serious. Yes. Absolutely. People are resourceful and can get better drugs sometimes, unfortunately, on the street. And in fact, I was watching this on the news. They were saying that the government is thinking about easing up the restrictions on narcotics for acute pain because it's driving this drug problem. And now that people in other communities are overdosing and dying, now the government is realizing we need to do something differently. Yeah, I did hear about that as well. I did hear about that. And it's communities that they definitely feel alarmed to love. Yeah, because why is it that you can find Narcan in certain communities, but not in others? Exactly, exactly. Oh my gosh. This is like, yo, this is not an episode two. I did did an intro episode last week for the podcast. And if this is not a blowout, like you definitely got the conversation started, Dr. Allison. Like, this is really, like, so many gems you shared. What, okay, so you did say you have a webinar coming up, but what what do you have coming up that we should, like, have our listeners tune into? So, yeah, tomorrow's webinar, um, we're talking about um, racism as the root cause of uh, medical errors. So um, that's obviously going to be too soon. Um, but that's definitely, you know, a, a, t- a topic that's near and dear to me. And if I have a minute, I can share kind of why, how it came about. Yeah, of course. So um, a couple of years ago, um, one of my friends um, texted me on a Monday evening that he had gone to the emergency department because he like couldn't, like he couldn't lift his tongue. It was right heavy. And he had a similar episode like that about a month ago before this happened. And I had told him, well, maybe you're having an allergic reaction because he was on a medication that's known to cause swelling. So I said, take a Benadryl and see if you feel better. And if you don't go to the ER. And he did feel better after that Benadryl. So he thought he was having it again. And he went to emergency. And in the emergency room, they just assumed that's what it was. And they gave him steroids and some Benadryl. Things, quote unquote, got better. So I said, well, when you got there, because he had high blood pressure and diabetes, I said, how was your sugar? How was your blood pressure? 
just to make sure there wasn't something else going on. Because mm-hmm. I know he's not good about taking his meds and he's not good about following good diet. So he was like, yeah, my pressure was high and my sugar was high. And I was like, well, are we sure something's not going on like a stroke? Right. No, no, I think I'm good. I said, okay. Because he also know, mentioned that he had some headache. And I was like, they didn't scan your head to make sure you didn't have a stroke? No, nah, no. Nah. Okay. So then fa- fast forward to the following day, I text him the Tuesday now. And he's like, oh, I really can't talk. They're like, you know, my tongue. And I was like, this doesn't sound right. I think, you know, something, I think you're having a stroke maybe. So then fast forward to Wednesday, his endocrinologist called me and is like, you know, can you get him in with the primary care doctor? This is beyond my skill set. This is, you know, crazy. Cause she knows that we're friends mm-hmm. and he knows that me and her are cool. So I said, you know, yeah. And so I called him up and he's still having, and I said, you know what? I'm coming to get you and I'm bringing you to my hospital because we have a stroke center there. Okay. And I said, this is it. Because I was afraid if I called an ambulance, he wouldn't have gotten in it. Okay. That was at the time. He, and also at the time, he didn't have health insurance. So I didn't want to hear him complaining about how the bill would be, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. So on the way there, his mom happened to work in the system. So I emailed her and said, when you get a chance, call me. I need to ask you something because I didn't want to make her scared. Actually, so yeah, so she called me and I was in the car on my way. So I said to her, I said, I didn't want to freak you out by sending you an email telling you what's going on, but I'm going to get your son because I think he's having a, he's had a stroke. So she's like, you sure we shouldn't call an ambulance? I said, we should, but I know your son and I just know he's not going to get in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I went and got him. He comes out the house with his bag of pills and I was like, well, you know, where's your computer, your overnight bag? Because I don't see how you're going home tonight. He's like, oh, no big deal. I got him to the emergency room. I was moving in about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And before I actually even pulled, left the house, I said, do me a favor, smile. Half of his face smiled, the other half didn't. I said, oh stick out your tongue. Gosh. Instead of his tongue going straight, it like deviated to one side. I oh said, my, my man, you had a stroke. Oh when you God. had it, I don't know, probably Sunday, but this is a stroke. This ain't no allergic reaction. Right. So I got him to the ER. His blood pressure was 200. 20 over 100 something. Oh my gosh. And he's just sitting there like, no big deal. And they're like, oh my goodness. So the the person who did his intake, the physician's assistant, I know her because again, I worked there and I used to go to the ER quite a bit. And she's like, yeah, his exam is kind of weird because again, it's subtle. Plus mm-hmm. I noticed that he's slurring his speech. But if you don't know him, you don't necessarily know that. But mm-hmm. I hear it. I'm like, this is not how he speaks. So I had to leave and go to a meeting. So I said, I'll be back. Before I could get back, she she calls me. She's like, Allison, he had a stroke. Wow. His his scan lit up. Pretty much the neurologist said to me, had so what happened was he had a big clot and a small piece broke off. And that small piece went to the area that would help with his tongue movement, which is why he had these issues in that part of his face. And the, the neurologist said that had that little piece not broken off and the entire thing broke off, Two things would have happened, complete paralysis or death. Wow. He's a black male. He's 39 at the time, hypertension, diabetes. And even though his numbers were high at the other hospital, they never scanned his head. Wow. So what I did is when I found out, I actually happened to know the head of the ER at that hospital. And I said to him, I need you to review a case because I think somebody made a mistake here. Mm -hmm. They dropped the Because had they caught it Sunday... 
it might have had a, you know, a different outcome. I mean, once you have a stroke, you have a stroke, but there are medications that can be used if you can catch it within, you know, the first four or six hours or so. So oh, to make a long story yeah. short, he had the stroke. Um, and, you know, his. I noticed like on days, like if I talk to him when he's tired, he starts to slur a little bit, mm-hmm. but the slurring did get better with time. Um, and, you know, it was a wake up call. Wow. Wow. I think that's, so that's what we're talking problem. about. Yeah. You know, how, you know, we, you know, things we can, they can miss things when it comes to us. And, um, yeah. Wow. He's number one. He's so lucky to have a friend like you, um, that definitely knew what to ask the questions to ask and to really, to go pick him up. And Mm -hmm. honestly, like everyone is probably listening. We're not all doctors on the call, but I'm like, Mm -hmm. everyone needs to take that approach, um, to definitely, when you feel like something is off and the person is not advocating for themselves, it's to get up and go get them. Um, right. And normally I would condone calling the ambulance, but the problem was in this case, had I called an ambulance, the other issue was they would have taken him back to the same hospital because where he lived was not in a place that would have, um, they would have taken him to my hospital. So that was my other concern. Okay. I wouldn't necessarily condone other people do that, but you know, you can also, so nowadays they have, um, Uber and Lyft will can take people, you know, I know they have that as a service for people who don't have cars and it might be in a place where the ambulance ain't coming. Um, but um ooh, yeah. Okay. That's keep dropping these gems. I didn't know that. So that's really good. I know like me and my brother personally, uh, we've done several pop-ups on family members and not those mm-hmm. that have strokes. Obviously, a stroke is very time, like you know, you have a very small window, but uh, my parents will tell you if we hear a call for something, we like get in the car. Like we literally want mm-hmm. to know what's going on because sometimes people discount things or or they might just think it's something else. Like he thought it was something else and he was told mm-hmm. it was something else. So right. <sighs> and then also we deny things. We don't want to believe it's something. Like I mean, who wants to have a stroke at thirty nine? Exactly. That now that is I mean... a whole truth. <laughs> this is a whole fact because you don't mm-hmm. my. When I talked to my mom on Saturday, she was like, I think it's something wrong with your penis. I'm like, girl, no. Like, <laughs> like, it just seemed wild to me. And then I watched a YouTube video. I'm like, all right, try to put on your clothes and go go to the hospital. But yeah, we do we don't want to hear those things. Um, so cool. So I did want to uh, talk to you lastly is about this soul star tip. So um, we call people of Soul by the Pound Soul Stars. And these mm-hmm. are just women of color who are really trying to work their hardest to not only inspire and motivate others, but also themselves to live a life full of good health. And this is for mental, physical, and spiritual. So I try to give them like an exercise to do after each episode. So like last episode, which last was really the first episode, the last episode we did was for Valentine's Day. And the homework assignment was for ladies to write a love letter to themselves and to romanticize their life for the week. So I'm asking you, what would you give as a soul star tip? What exercise can our listeners like put into play as soon as they in this, in this, um, in this, I was about to say webinar. I'm thinking about your thing. In this podcast, what would you give them like their soul star exercise or tip of the week? So my tip of the week would be um, it's important to stay moving. And very often we tell people, you know, you need to get 150 minutes of exercise a week, which can sound very intimidating if you're not someone who exercises. 
Like I go to the gym. If I'm in the gym, I'm there usually 45 to 60 minutes easy. But everyone doesn't have that time. Everyone is not that in shape. So what I tell people is, is you can always break it up. So if you are shooting for 30 minutes, five days a week, that means that during for 10 minutes in the morning, you can go for a walk. 10 minutes in the afternoon, you can go for a walk. 10 minutes in the evening, you can go for a walk. If you're not up to wanting to do, if you live in an apartment building, walking up and down in your hallway. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you live near a mall, a mall is a wonderful place. That's what I do sometimes. I go walking in the mall because if I do, I know if I do about six or seven laps around, I can probably get close to 10,000 steps. So it's really important to stay active because the sitting, the sedentary lifestyle is what's going to contribute to a lot of the chronic diseases that disproportionately affect Black and Latino communities as the hypertension, the hyperlipidemia, the diabetes. So it's really important to continue that. You know, people of color, we have traditional dances that we do. I never mm. knocked that. I always say I think that's how I maintained my youthful figure when I was younger because we used to go clubbing. So there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. But if you think about it, after three or that's four so hours true. of dancing, you burn a lot of calories. That's so, true. so, you know, like uh, Sonia Sotomayor, Chief Justice, she says she's got type 1 diabetes, and but she says she loves the salsa. I remember reading that in her book. Oh. And that's good. Whether you're salsa, soca, bachata, R&B, hip hop, you know, waltz, foxtrot, whatever. Um, using these things from our culture, um, you can definitely get some good exercise in dancing. And, you know, we love to clean. Cleaning is another one. When I clean, do laundry, I usually can get a good three, 4,000 steps in, the up and down and everything. So, you know, I, I definitely feel like getting like, a, I'm not condoning that you have to get Apple, but I know my Apple watch keeps me accountable. So oh, I can track yes. my steps. <laughs> I track how many calories I'm burning to make sure that I'm moving enough. Yes. So I tell people, you know, even if you don't, because Apple watches are not cheap. And if Santa Claus isn't going to bring you one, you can get a Fitbit or a pedometer that's not as expensive. But I think until I got that, I did not realize how much or how little I was moving at times. So true. Yeah. My watch tells me, like, stand up, China. I'm like, oh. Yeah, exactly. And there's a way to cheat, but I'm not going to tell y'all how to do that. Yeah, don't tell <laughs> I figured it out, but I am not going to share that with the audience, but I figured out a standing cheat, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you ladies heard it. So your soul star tip of the week. Well, I should Movie. say of the episode because this podcast will come out bi-weekly. But so the soul star tip of this episode is 150 minutes a week. I think it's doable. I think I ladies Absolutely. Can do it. You can spread it. Because if you don't want to do 30 minutes five days a week, you can try to do like 20, you know, 22 minutes every day. But, you know, again, you can make it fun. It doesn't have to be going to the gym. It's going to the gym is not for everybody. That's my oasis, mm-hmm. but it's not for everybody. So true. And if you do, and the thing is, you don't even have to go. You can buy weights. And the reason why I tell people either get bands or small weights is because resistance training helps you speed up your metabolism. And that's going to allow you to burn more calories and fat during the day. If I go to the gym in the morning and lift weights, by the end of the day, I burn a lot more calories than I would um, if I don't go. So, because my metabolism is constantly just burning, 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 even though I'm not necessarily running around at the job. So so it's something that people just get some bands, five pound weights, cans, whatever, and, you know, use those when you're walking. But that definitely will help you because a lot of us, once we reach that certain age, it's hard to lose that weight. Listen, it's hard. It's it is hard. so hard. I remember when when I started so by the pound, I think I lost fifty pounds in like three nice. months. Right? Wow! And I was like, I fifty pounds in three months because I, I started at twenty six. 
Now here I am, and I'm like, I do way more fitness. I eat way cleaner than I did then, and it is mm-hmm. so much harder. It is mm-hmm. so much harder. Yeah. But I do think, like, one of the things that keeps me going, and I think this will be good for our listeners, is that that 150 minutes a week, it makes you feel better, too. Like, it does. that time, it does. like, it does. workout, you feel amazing, like, after yeah. this. You and you know what else? Like, when I have, like, back-to-back Zoom meetings, if I have meetings that I can turn my camera off, sometimes I get up and I'll start doing, like, my like some core or ab exercises or walking in place. Just so this way, I'm not just sitting, sitting, sitting. Oh, like when I would have the grand rounds on Friday, you have a presenter, so I would actually lift, you know, do weights or something in the round while I was listening. Oh, and then it just helps me through the day. Not like that. I actually need to adapt that because I will Mm -hmm. be the first to admit, like since COVID, I will sit at a screen for so long, and I actually just recently bought some five pound weights. Shout out to five dot. What is it? Five below. They had them for like five dollars. So oh, nice. got some tiny ones. Yeah, because I normally take hit and um. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Ja. He makes us have these big at big old kettlebells. Let me say that. Mm-hmm. And, I love kettlebells. Yes. Great. So I had no small weight. So I was like, okay, let me. So I went to five below and got these two five pounders just for like the steps and like. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm glad you said that too about in your apartment building, just like yeah. walking up the hallway. Because I know yeah. everyone in my building, they don't take the elevator. I'm like the only person. Like I know. Oh, yeah, I take the stairs. I take it, and I'm doing it with a mask on, so I burn even more calories. But like when I come home from work, I walk unless if I have a lot of groceries or if I'm doing laundry, I'll take the elevator. But I take the stairs. I I, I can make it up five flights now. Because that I'm so, so used to doing it. Nice I started people. doing it during pandemic because I didn't want to get in the elevator with people. And then I was oh. like, I'm just going to keep doing it. Yeah, that's how I started doing it. It was because of pandemic. I didn't want to get in the elevator with people. So I just started taking the stairs. That makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I need to and do that. Maybe I and will I still do it. Because I'm on the ninth floor. So that's a whole different. Yeah, it is. It is. But your body will adjust over time. That's true. But and for that- those of you that are not in great shape, it, you know, you start small. Start with two right. flights. And, there's and no then just get on the limit. elevator there. Yeah. And there's no time limit. So if it takes me no. to get up or 15, that's like, it doesn't matter. Like there's, there's no rush mm-hmm. to go lay down or get in the house. So. Yeah. Well, I have to say tonight was so amazing. I it was so honored. I like, you're an amazing person. I knew that when I first met you and I like, I don't even think I can imagine how amazing tonight's interview will go because you definitely shared so many gems. I definitely want you to come back again if you want. Absolutely. To. <laughs> Thank you. You're amazing too. I appreciate you. you so I will wrap it up here. Thank you everyone for tuning in to Soul by the Pound podcast. Um, be sure to subscribe and share with a friend and we are done. Have a good night, everyone. Good night.